Welcome to The Blind Side. News and information from a blindness perspective. Here's Jonathan Mosen. And it's great to have you with us for episode 80. A reminder that this podcast is divided into chapters. And so if you have a podcast client that is equipped with that functionality, it makes it really easy to skip between sections of the podcast without having to flick back and forward a minute or whatever at a time. We have listener comments today and they're all segmented by chapters, so it makes it really easy if you're not using a podcast client that supports chapters, maybe consider doing so. It'll make a big difference to the way that you can navigate through the blind side. Now on the podcast today, we're going to be talking to three people from Microsoft Research who've been engaged in some fascinating work making virtual reality accessible to blind people through a project known as the Cane Troller. And this does have the potential to provide simulation of a route that you've never visited from the comfort of your own home or perhaps from the comfort of the office of your orientation and mobility instructor. It's still a research project at this stage, and we'll talk about that in just a moment. There are plenty of listener comments on the podcast today about Ira, CSUN, and some other things that we talked about in last week's podcast And in our news section, we're going to talk about person-first language and solicit your comments on that. And there's also a new paper that has been published. It's amazing what people research these days on what blind people experience when they go on an LSD trip, because we hear all about these visual hallucinations, right? But what if you've been blind since birth? One of the important questions of our age, and we'll give you the answers so that you don't have to try this at home. Don't try this at home. It's all coming up on this episode of The Blind Side. It's time to hear from this week's featured guest on The Blind Side. Microsoft has delivered some innovative new products to blind people in recent times. We've talked on the podcast before, of course, about seeing AI and soundscape. Now Microsoft researchers are considering how virtual reality, which is a technology many of us think of as inherently visual, might be put to use in a blindness context. The cane troller just might be a technology that sometime in future could allow you to rehearse traveling in unfamiliar environments from the comfort of your own home or perhaps from the office of your orientation and mobility instructor. We're joined to talk about this fascinating project by three people from Microsoft Research, We've got Mary Morris, Ed Cuttrell, and also Mike Sinclair. Welcome to all of you. Thanks for being on The Blind Side. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks so much. Can I start with you, Mary? Tell us a little bit about the work that you are doing at Microsoft Research before we talk about the cane troller specifically, because when I did a bit of search in advance, using Bing, of course, it looks like you're doing some really fascinating stuff. Yes, so Microsoft Research is actually really investing in doing research on accessible technologies. Uh, We actually have a brand new research group in our lab called the Ability Team. Uh, And this team is looking at conducting research at the intersection of artificial intelligence and natural human interaction techniques to really expand the capabilities of all users, uh, but particularly thinking about disability-related scenarios. It interests me, and we'll perhaps come back to this a little further, but it interests me that Microsoft is spending so much time on these accessibility questions because it goes well beyond what we've traditionally thought of as Microsoft's bread and butter core business of Windows. Microsoft's clearly giving a lot of thought to the way that disabled people can engage with the wider world, the wider environment. Yeah, Microsoft's mission statement, of course, is to empower every person on the planet to achieve more. And that includes the more than a billion people worldwide who have some type of disability. So it's something we take very seriously. And Mike, I don't want to kind of unduly age you, but I know that you're a veteran in the (laughs) accessibility space. What kind of work are you doing at the moment with Microsoft? I see you are a co-author of this paper. Oh, right. Uh, so um, as I found through my career path, I'm very easily amused in a lot of different areas, but specifically in uh, putting my skill sets to task, mainly in the mechatronic area, uh, to the sense of haptics, a much maligned sense that we all use and take for granted, and yet is uh, kind of back in the dark ages. Haptics is the sense of touch, and what we helped with the Cane controller is to bring that sense of touch to the user. 
And Ed, what's your role been in this project? Um, so my main research is actually in human-computer interaction. So really at a, at a very basic level, I'm just very interested in understanding how machines and people work together to sort of create um, solutions to all kinds of problems. And uh, um, I find that working in the space of disability is particularly interesting because it really stretches us and pushes us a little bit to look at more creative ways that we can uh, try to get things done and explore different kinds of problems. And uh, as we do that, it actually turns out to be really important for everyone, not just the folks that are disabled, but I think coming to it from the perspective of including everyone that um, often gets a little bit ignored um, turns out to be very, very rewarding and a really nice, creative way of exploring the ways in which everybody can use technologies. Before we talk about how this cane controller or cane troller works, I've seen it referred to as both. How did you come up with the idea for this? I'm not sure which one of you would like to take this, but obviously something in the research division kind of clicked and you thought that this was something worth exploring. I'm interested in learning about the genesis of this project. Yeah, the idea for this project started um, kind of when we were brainstorming, of course, a very uh, familiar kind of project that we see a lot of examples of in the research space is people who take a, a regular white cane and want to enhance it. So uh, in the research and kind of commercial markets, you see a lot of people these days trying to augment a typical white cane with digital capabilities. And I know um, there are some challenges in, in having that be something that that people would want to buy. You know, people want to know that they can always trust their cane and that it won't run out of batteries or have a bug while they're crossing the street. And so that particular uh, research problem space wasn't something we wanted to get into. But thinking about that topic area, uh, we decided to uh, flip uh, that a little bit and think instead, you know, people have invested hours and even years in training to become very skilled with just a uh, old-fashioned white cane without any augmentation. And we wanted to think about how we could leverage that wonderful skill that people have developed in the virtual reality space. Uh, so rather than augmenting a regular cane, we're instead just allowing people to transfer their knowledge of how to navigate with a regular cane in a VR environment by providing rich haptic and auditory feedback. Were you originally thinking of ways to make virtual reality something viable, usable for blind people, and that's how this came up? Or was it more that you were specifically interested in the orientation and mobility challenges that might be possible to meet through virtual reality? Because as I said in the intro, when, when many blind people think of virtual reality, they often think, oh gosh, this is inherently visual. This is something that doesn't concern me. One of the things, I think there were two things that I would say happened when we were sort of approaching this. I mean, the first was that, that we've got an ongoing research effort with a team here that's just exploring haptics in VR. So this is not necessarily within the, um, the, the blind or visually impaired space, right? But one of the things that, that we've been very aware of is that visuals dominate v VR is the way we think about it today. And so that really got us thinking as we were sort of exploring the haptic space, we were saying, well, how do we make VR more inclusive and make it just generally more available for everybody? And that's really sort of, I think it was the confluence of those two things together that really kicked off the idea for this project. On the one hand, the exploration of haptics generally, and on the other hand, how do we make VR more inclusive? And uh, if you think in the VR space, we're pretty much at or beyond acuity for our eyes should they work, for our ears, for 3D localization, we're kind of back in the dark ages with haptics. And in one case, it was kind of low-hanging fruit, and there were so many things we could do in a positive direction that it was just uh, um, a very, very interesting project. So do you think that we will get to the stage where you can touch a blade of grass or a, a, a clump of grass or pick up a glass bottle and feel its texture? Are we going to get there? Uh, I'll, I'll go out on a limb and say, yes, you can do that now. However, the devices uh, relegated to that narrow um, use case 
pretty much relegated to the back skunk works at Academia and uh, um, some of the um, uh, businesses looking toward haptics and VR now. You're not, you don't see them in consumer uh, commercial space. As a matter of fact, what is the, uh, the, the main programmable haptics that we all enjoy and use today? Well, it's the cell phone buzzing in your pocket. That's haptics. That's programmable. That's pretty much it as far as consumer um, haptics. You, now, you, you uh, uh, experience rumble motors and game controllers and uh, buzzing things and other kinds of controllers, but that's pretty much state-of-the-art. We've got a long way to go for what we call NUI or natural user interfaces. What is natural? What is I don't need to learn a new graffiti when I pick up this device. It feels natural. What, what is it that we need to do? And the sense of smell, which is another sense that blind people rely heavily on, of course, that must be a very difficult one to simulate in a virtual reality environment. Well, actually, some people are working on that. Um, I'm personally not all that interested in investigating that, um, but it's pretty cool. I mean, I've seen some some demos of it, and uh, they're, they're just kind of elaborate demos, though, as you can imagine, because it requires injectors and and sort of things that will um, uh, infuse the air and then flush out the air quickly in order to, you know, change all these things around. But, uh, you know, hey, it's pretty exciting. I'm just, I think it's a little further out, even than haptics. Yeah. Go on a vacation without the stress in the end. Let's talk about the cane controller specifically, because there's a bunch of components that makes this work. Can we go through what's required? What does the user have to be equipped with for this experience? So if you can imagine um, uh, exploring your world with a stick, which essentially what the uh, blind or uh, visually impaired persons do, they have a keen sense of, of tactile feeling or haptics. They have a very keen sense of presence with 3D audio. And uh, that's pretty much it. Um, so how do you augment their space and take advantage of those? So what we did was to make a, a device they strap on their waist. And the waist is a good place to what we call ground uh, this object. You can't ground it to the earth uh, like a robot is grounded to the floor and operates against you, force against you. They need to uh, uh, walk around with this device. So the majority of the weight of this device is borne on the waist. Now, out of the waste comes a, um, actually, it's a particle clutch or uh, a brake. And the computer controls the brake. And the brake is fastened to a very short stick that feels very much like the white cane that a blind person uses. But it's very short, so it doesn't interact with anything in, in their environment that's real. When they wiggle this stick back and forth uh, or think they're dragging the stick on the ground, which actually does not touch the real ground, we impart haptics or, or the sense of, of touch, uh, which is both um, texture and kinesthetic. Texture meaning that they're scrubbing it against carpet, and they feel the carpet texture. Scrubbing it against asphalt or concrete, they, they feel and hear what they normally hear with their cane. Uh, they bang into a wall or, or into a chair or into a, a, a movable, say, a light wastebasket. They get all that rich haptic um, audio and, uh, and haptic feedback uh, via their cane and via their earphones that they're wearing. And so they're essentially walking around in uh, other than uh, just a floor and some walls are not allowed to touch. They're walking around in a, a sparse environment and we impose these walls, floors, uh, wastebaskets, um, curbsides, um, cane po uh, uh, light posts and whatnot. We impose that via audio and haptics. That's remarkable. So I suppose if this were ever commercialized or mass produced in some way, then it might be possible for an orientation and mobility instructor using map data or some other technique to put together a, a pretty close simulation of an environment that a blind person might be wanting to walk around, but perhaps they want to rehearse in a safe environment because, say, of fear of traffic or something like that. Exactly. So we imagine um, there are several scenarios where you might uh, want to use this for orientation and mobility training that might let you achieve things that aren't possible today. So one is to rehearse uh, potentially frightening scenarios like a traffic crossing 
first in a, a very safe environment that's just virtually simulated uh, so that you can uh, feel safe before you practice in the real world. Uh, but another scenario is also things that wouldn't be possible today. So for example, let's say that, uh, Jonathan, you had a business trip in Seattle and you were going to come here and visit us and you were not familiar with the layout of the Seattle airport, but you might wish to be before you came to visit. Unfortunately, you're not going to take an extra flight here to practice beforehand, but perhaps you could uh, practice navigating the layout of that airport in a simulator such as this. Uh, or similarly, um, if you were preparing to go perhaps uh, somewhere uh, cold, maybe you were traveling to Northern Europe and it was the winter and there might be snow, um, you perhaps don't have experience uh, living in a warmer climate of navigating with a cane in the snow. So in the virtual reality simulator, you would be able to practice the orientation and mobility skills needed in that new environment uh, so that you're prepared when you encounter it in real life. And you're wearing a headset. So this means that presumably you can do traffic simulation as well. If a blind person wanted to gain some experience with listening for audible traffic cues, they would be able to do that before actually literally hitting the road. Yes, it absolutely. Does. Um, I, I would say that actually the headset is actually a critical component. I mean, the haptics alone without the 3D audio are, are really quite a sparse experience. But when you complement the uh, this haptic experience with that audio feedback and the uh, high frequency um, vibrational feedback of the um, the texture, etc., that really paints a much richer experience of the environment for someone who's using it. Yeah, I was struck in your paper where you were working with, I think, nine blind people as part of this research project. And eight out of nine found that within a few minutes, they were able to navigate an environment. They could tell when they were running into a trash can, that kind of thing. It seemed very effective. But the one person who had some difficulty seemed to be indicating that even though you've got the 3D audio, one thing they found was missing was echolocation, which a lot of experienced blind travelers do rely on. That's true. Um one potential, I mean, part of the problem with this, of course, is that we were using fairly simple um, headphones and things like that. But you could easily imagine that with, say, sophisticated headphones with a microphone um, associated with them, you could actually integrate external sounds. So things like echolocation, self-produced clicks, or things like that, that then would be fed back into um, the headphones in sort of a reliable way. Now, I'm not sure exactly how that would work within VR because now then we would have to uh, sort of build that very rich kind of echolocation in that's a fake echolocation, if you understand what I'm saying. So we have to generate a click in the virtual space and then be able to map what that uh, complicated set of echoes from the environment would actually produce. And that's a little bit beyond the... the um, level that we are trying to create right now, but it's certainly within the realm of possibility for what is what is able to do today, technically. And the good news is we have a group here at Microsoft Research working on what they call 3D audio, just that. Remove the ambiance from the room you're in and su uh, supplement or supplant that with true 3D audio out in the wild. Another thing that might improve the 3D audio experience for some users is in the future, you might use a personalized uh, HRTF for each user. So that's the head-related transfer function. So right now we use a generic uh, HRTF. So it's kind of a model of the geometry of the generic user's uh, head and, and ears, um, but a more personalized HRTF can deliver even more accurate spatial audio. Um, and that's something that could perhaps be done uh, for users in a orientation and mobility training scenario. I, actually, I would say that that's, that's probably even more important in this scenario than in many others because the uh, generic HRTF is pretty good for many people, but it's often terrible for a few people. And so if you happen to be one of those poor folks who, for whom it's really terrible, then the whole thing is just not going to work very well. This is really interesting to me because I know that there are some people who get on very well with the traditional tactile maps. But some people just cannot seem to convert, I guess, um, three-dimensional concepts into something two-dimensional like a tactile map 
of an area that they're not familiar with. And so it seems to me this virtual reality experience could be just a game changer for people like that who can truly almost feel like they're experiencing the environment before they go. And and it could actually have a really significant impact on people's confidence to travel in unfamiliar environments. Yes, and actually that's one of the um, areas of research that's ongoing at Microsoft is we're trying to uh, actually understand better and uh, see if we can demonstrate whether practicing navigating a virtual environment does actually lead to transfer of learning uh, of those spatial relations when you then visit the actual real place. Um, So hopefully now tools like Caneetroller give us the platform that we need to be able to study and investigate those questions. What happens in future with this concept? Is it something that will be considered, okay, this is a good proof of concept, Uh, and leave it at that? Or do you think it's something that might be able to be mass produced in some form so that either individuals who want to rehearse different areas or O&M instructors might be able to have this technology to work with? The first order answer is that uh, at the current stage right now, this is a research investigation. So we certainly have no immediate plans uh, for Microsoft to begin selling the cane troller at your local Microsoft store. Um, instead, I think this research is helping uh, us and the broader academic community begin to think about uh, important questions like how does one make virtual reality and augmented reality accessible to people with uh, varying sensory capabilities. And I think that those higher level issues uh, are something that hopefully will influence Microsoft's offerings of virtual reality uh, going forward into the future. So we really want to be leaders as a company in thinking about how to make virtual reality accessible. Um, And this Caneetroller exploration was one way for us to begin thinking about that. And from a researcher standpoint, at least my standpoint, um, we're on the vertical part of the learning curve and our learning velocity is huge. We're learning so much uh, we learned things that we should have done differently. We learned things we didn't very well. But uh, it's, it's like I said before, it's kind of low-hanging fruit, and, and uh, it's a great start. We've learned a lot, and it would be great uh, to carry this on. Is this something that you think ultimately does have the potential, you know, without committing anybody to anything, but it, it might it have the potential to be something that we would use, say, with Xbox, which seems to be the most logical Microsoft platform to pursue this with? Certainly gaming is definitely one possible uh, application area for accessible VR. So, you know, we've been focusing in this discussion mostly on orientation and mobility training, uh, which of course is a a kind of virtual reality simulation that's specifically of interest to people who are visually impaired. Uh, But we think it's actually important that all kinds of VR, including mainstream VR uh, applications such as uh, video games would also be accessible to this audience. So I think that uh, the use of haptic and audio feedback devices that we've been exploring for gaming purposes um, is really important. And the reaction that you've received from O&M instructors, uh, I know that eight out of nine of the blind participants thought that it was a worthwhile project. Have you had feedback from orientation and mobility professionals as well? Yes, um, we as part of this project, we interviewed a number of them and demoed it for them, and they worked with us. You know, one of those um, blind folks that we had tested with this was also an O and M instructor, um, but but pretty much to a person, all the O and M instructors were fascinated by the uh, the project, were interested in the capabilities that it might um, provide, but they were also a little measured in their enthusiasm. Um, you know, I think that they, they're basically thinking, yeah, this could be really cool. It's not there yet. And, you know, show me when you get, you know, when you make your next version. Um, and that's exactly the appropriate response because, I mean, honestly, we are, as Mike said, on the vertical part of the learning curve. There's a long way to go that I think things will get much, much better uh, still to come. And, uh, you know, we just need to, to do that work. And look what simulation's done for other parts of technology and learning. Look at the flight simulator. Some of the pilots, the only training they get 
is in a flight simulator, such that their first flight in a real jet with revenue uh, passengers uh, is their first flight on that plane. Uh, that, that's how sophisticated it is. You probably read also about uh, surgical training. Um, simulation is really playing a very important role uh, in that aspect, in training. And um, we've also learned that it takes years to become, become very proficient at using the cane efficiently, and uh, especially for, for maintaining your safety. We think another aspect of this research could involve uh, uh, help in training uh, new cane users. I think it's just commendable beyond all measure that Microsoft is spending time thinking about these issues because you mentioned Flight Simulator and similar products like that. That's a pretty lucrative and large market, but the blind community is small. It's really a niche market, and it's hard to imagine the commercial imperative for being in that space, and yet clearly... Uh, some considerable resources have already gone into thinking about these issues. That's quite unusual for a commercial entity like Microsoft. Well, I think there are are two main reasons for that. So, you know, one, as I already mentioned, Microsoft truly uh, cares about empowering uh, all users, um, including uh, people with disabilities. Um, But secondary, from a more uh, business standpoint, Uh, It's often the case we find that developing technology for a particular uh, user need group actually benefits all users who may at some point in their use of technology be uh, temporarily or situationally impaired. Uh, So, for example, even people with sight uh, often are unable to use their eyes. Perhaps they are uh, driving a car and they need to operate a device hands-free. And so thinking about how we can develop better user experiences for someone who can't see or someone who can't hear or someone who has a a motor challenge uh, can actually often end up benefiting all of our users. That's the voice of Mary Morris from Microsoft Research. She was also joined by Mike Sinclair and Ed Cuttrell. Isn't it a fascinating area? It's just really interesting to see where virtual reality will take the blindness experience in future. Let's go through just some of the listener feedback that we've received over the last week. You can have your say. Drop me an email to theblindside at mosin.org. You can attach an audio file, as some people have done, or you can write something down. That's fine. Theblindside at mosin.org on the email. And you can call the listener line. That number in the United States is 719-270-5114. That number again, 719-270-5114. And if you're using one of the cool podcast clients that allows you to skip around by chapter, each listener comment is separated into its own chapter. So if there's something you don't want to hear, just double tap that chapter button and you can skip to the next comment. Hello, Jonathan. This is Brad Snyder calling. Uh, I have not yet listened to Blindside number 79, but I did see your email and your mention of the podcast uh, phone line and wanted to call in and take the opportunity to say hello to you and all the listeners. Uh, It was uh, great to meet you last week in San Diego and have a few minutes of conversation with you. Uh, I really enjoyed my first CSUN. I saw a lot of things, learned a lot of things, and I too. Notice the conspicuous absence of a corporate presence of Apple, and I agree. It was surprising and missed opportunity by then. Hello, Jonathan. It's Grace here. You know, this is wonderful news for me. In being able to dial this number now, it means that if I want to say something, I can do that. It's just fantastic. I couldn't believe it when you told me this when I was listening to the to the podcast today. So I'm thrilled about this and enjoyed listening to the podcast very much. Um, I remember when I first got the Sonata and I couldn't get this feature, but now that I've got the Amazon Echo, well, I can listen to it every time you put a podcast on, so that's wonderful. So I just wanted to say a big thank you um, in putting this phone number on so that you know, people like myself can contact you. Thanks, Grace. And it's worth mentioning that we do have an increasing number of people in our community who are accessing content like podcasts who don't have a computer at all. 
to speak of. And that's the situation that Grace is in. She's had somebody assist her to get the initial Amazon Echo setup done, but uses it without any kind of computer at all or smartphone. And she's able to tune into the blind side via Alexa, and now she can contribute via the phone. So this is something that we're going to see increasingly, I think, people consuming podcast content without having any computer device at all. But of course, there are plenty of people who do have computer devices, including Denise and Travis, who are in Montana. And Denise has sent me an email. We love Irish, she says. We use it to navigate through an airport. It is quicker to use Ira than wait for an airport employee. I was taking 100 milligrams to 50 milligram tablets medication. I got my new prescription and the bottle was smaller and the pill was slightly bigger and shaped differently. I knew something had changed. I called Ira and they told me that one pill was now a 100 milligram instead of taking two 50 milligram tablets. If I hadn't contacted Ira to check, I would have taken double the dose. We also use it to go over menus and restaurants. We used it at a guide dog alumni reunion. The hotel was confusing with different levels on one floor. Ira helped us find conference rooms and describe everything around us so I could understand the layout. The agents are so nice and helpful. I can't wait for the new glasses and the box that comes with it. Hello, Jonathan Mosen. This is Celeste. I can relate to some of what you said. I am, of course, totally blind. I have a high-frequency hearing loss, and I'm one of these people who lost my sight, the rest of my eyesight, a few years ago. And up until that point, with what sight I had, I was very much a visual learner. And so, you know, I would use what little vision I had very well. I, you know, learned how to read and write, print. Um, I could play video games. I've been able to see colors, all that stuff. And so having Ira, while it's not, you know, an implant and being able to see with the naked eye, it's as close as we're going to get at this point. Being able to move my head around the room and wearing the glasses and getting basically a beautiful, colorful picture painted of what's around me. As I like to describe it, it's like having descriptive, a descriptive movie in real time. I've been using Ira since January 10th of this year and I have not looked back since. I've used it for many things, for things around my apartment. I got every single clock in this apartment reset at daylight saving time, even those that I couldn't access independently that was more for sighted visitors, like a clock on the wall, for example. Set to the correct time with the help of an IRA agent. I'll still go grocery shopping with my mom sometimes, but at least once or twice a month, I will go to the grocery store on my own using Uber or Lyft to and from the store and I will walk down the aisles with wearing my Ira smart glasses and do my grocery shopping and one of the most wonderful things about this not only do I not have to go find a customer service person to help me but it's so amazing I think one of the most amazing parts of this is how independent it's made me feel when I, you know, find the paper towels and take them off the shelf and verify that I picked up the right ones. And something that I did to help with this is I would go around my apartment while I still had several products that I normally buy on hand and the IVA agents, I would have them take pictures of the labels and we have them all stored in a document on Google Docs that they can access at any time that they set up on their end and so then when I go to the grocery store I can you know also usually type up a list and I'll have them take a picture of that before I go too so we both have a copy of the grocery list and so I can go down the aisles of the grocery store and we look at what's on the list and I can, you know, go pick up, say, the paper towels, verify that I, you know, picked up the right ones because I can, you know, put it close to the camera. And if they say, yes, yes, you picked up the right ones, it matches up the picture we have here and I can put it in the cart. And that is just 
amazing. I've done so many things. I got video games organized. I've gotten... Uh, they've helped me find episodes of shows I wanted to watch on DVD. Uh, one of the best things I've used Iowa for so far is watching my four-year-old nephew. He's very busy, very active, and doesn't always remember that I, his aunt, can't see like he can because he has, you know, normally, he has uh, normal eyesight. So he'll, you know, show me a picture or talk about the color of something and I know what colors look like, but, you know, I can't just see his, say, his drawing with the naked eye. But if I have an IRA agent on the line and they describe it to me and then I can appropriately comment, oh, that's a beautiful drawing, or incorporate colors into playtime with him when we're, you know, playing with his toys, or know where he is in the room, or if he's run off into another room. It's allowed me to keep a better watch on my nephew. Hello, Jonathan. This is Michael. I'm here. Just want to thank you about the podcast that you have been product, produced excuse me, for quite a long time. And I want to say about the IRA, and you mentioned about the IRA service. Does the monthly subscription provide, uh, does IRA provide a monthly subscriber glasses, or they have to use, uh, be a long-term subscriber with a uh, glasses? Uh, because, and what is the glasses looks like that, you know, can you do a, this, can you describe the IRA glasses for the future episode of the Blindside podcast that would be awfully nice. Hey, thanks for the call, Michael. The glasses are sort of plasticky. They have a camera that protrudes from one side of the glasses, but the glasses are being updated quite soon to new technology that Ira are calling the Horizon glasses. And this is a new package of technology where you'll have a modified Samsung, I believe it's a modified Samsung J7 device, and these will be tethered via a cable to these new Ira smart glasses. They look a lot more like real glasses, sort of fashion accessories. So they're not so obviously smart glass looking as the current glasses are. And that's pretty much what there is, really. They're Wi-Fi capable. They run on battery. And as I said, they do feel sort of plasticky and, and a bit big and bulky and smart glass-like. But that is going to be changing in the near future. You can check the IRA website, and also, as promised in the last episode of The Blind Side, I have now published my extensive review of IRA on the Mosin Consulting blog, and that does describe the glasses to some extent and also what's coming next. You can find that blog post by going to mosin.org slash IRA. That's mosin.org slash A-I-R-A. In terms of the cost, there is no additional hardware that you need to purchase if you have a smartphone right now, when you sign up to Ira, even at the $89 a month plan, you do get the smart glasses included. And when Ira switches to the new Horizon technology, you won't even need a smartphone. So somebody who doesn't have a smartphone at all will be able to just get this Ira device and fire it up and double tap a button and talk to an agent with the glasses connected. So the subscription is all-inclusive. And right now, Ira does have a deal with AT&T or an arrangement with AT&T. And so you get the MiFi device as well. That'll all be included in the new Horizon device. There won't be the need for the MiFi in future. But for now, you get the glasses and the MiFi device as part of your monthly subscription. And that means that you can use Ira without having to chew through your data plan of course, if AT&T coverage is poor where you are, and we'll hear from a caller in just a moment who has obviously had this issue, then you may be better if you're on another carrier who serves you well in a particular area to use the personal hotspot feature of your phone if that option is available in your plan. Hello, Jonathan. Uh, I just listened to your episode on the IRA glasses, and I was an early IRA subscriber and a couple of months ago, I dropped my subscription. I was on the basic plan paying $89 a month. And I was not getting good service. The biggest problem in the hotel and convention areas, 
I found it very difficult to connect with an agent. The connectivity was just not good inside of the uh, convention areas and hotels. Also had trouble inside of airports. It's a great service, and I wish I still had it. You know, but I just wished it would work a little bit better. It's. Uh, I think coming a long ways, and all the people there are really great. Suman and Amy and Michael and Jordan and all those guys are are really great, and uh, I think it's going to be a great service. I just wish the connectivity was better and uh, could uh, connect in more places. It's a really important point that you make, and sadly, it's an externality that Ira doesn't have a lot of control over. I understand that the device that they've chosen may latch on to the cellular network a little better than the MiFi device that they've had, so that may well result in some improvement. But I am actually quite surprised by how poor cellular coverage is in certain really built-up parts of the United States. When I was in my hotel room in San Diego, for example... I would have maybe one 4G bar and sometimes, depending on where I was in the room, no service at all. And that would be quite unusual here in New Zealand with built-up areas, metropolitan areas, to not have cellular signal. But some of those edifices that you're talking about are very difficult to cover with cellular signal because there's so much concrete absorbing the cellular signal and particularly when you go to exhibits and you're way down in the basement somewhere, you know, on a, on a low floor, it can be really difficult to get a signal. And that is, I agree, frustrating because uh, I did have a situation where I thought it might be quite cool to um, have Ira help me through the exhibit hall. I know some people managed to do it. I could not. Uh, when I got deep into the exhibit hall, I found that the signal dropped. And so it is a shame when externalities like that can cause a, a less than optimal experience which is not really within Ira's control. Hello Jonathan, I'm Claude Lynch calling from Ireland on Skype. Regarding the Braille display with iOS, I would like the customization of punctuation in Braille to be separate from that in speech so that if you change the speech punctuation to some or all, sorry, most or all or in you will uh, not get the words spoken in Braille as you do at present if you change it from some to either none or all. Also, I would like the ability to auto-scroll or auto-advance. In other words, that the Braille display would be able to read independently of speech instead of at present where you have, if you wished to set it to auto-read, set the Braille display to auto-read, as you can do with a screen reader such as JAWS, it will fly down to the bottom of the page far too quickly, at the bottom of the screen far too quickly, so you won't know where exactly uh, you want to be. You have to you have to read it manually, in other words, pan manually instead of auto-panning. Nice to get your feedback. I'm not sure I fully understand your first point about punctuation, but of course you can do a three-finger double tap to mute your speech, and you can also do that, of course, from the Braille display directly. You can do an M chord there to mute your speech, and that will cause um, no speech to be spoken as you scroll through. And you can also turn the little clicks off, which is often what I do as a... Um, a Braille user, I often turn speech off and sounds off and just use it exclusively as a Braille device. The auto-scrolling would be a nice feature, and I note, interestingly, that it is a feature that appears to be in certain apps now on the new iPad, such as Pages, I believe, has a kind of a teleprompter mode. But having it auto-scroll on the Braille display in the way that JAWS has done for many years would be a very nice addition, and maybe we will see it in iOS 12. Hey, Jonathan, this is Sean Williams from Michigan. How are you doing? Doing great. Thank you for asking. Um, I just wanted to comment on a, a couple of your 
um, points you made in your last podcast. First off, um, the Focus 40 Blue Braille displays. Uh, I've got the fourth gen myself. Haven't had a, haven't uh, seen the fifth gen, but I'm sure it's great. Uh, but the anyone who has or has felt has a Focus 40 or 14 or has felt one will no doubt know that these are great displays. I'm using mine, in fact, as I am talking. Uh, second point, Ira. Yeah, there are going to be those people who um, are going to say that the cost is a little hefty, but that's understandable. I personally can't afford it right now, but I'm looking forward to someday uh, testing out Ira and uh, seeing what it has to offer. It sounds very, very promising. And uh, finally, these these emojis are quite interesting, actually. The Apple emojis for people who are disabled. I'm curious as to how that will uh, play out. That, that'll be interesting. I, I wonder if the iPhone's going to say something like, or voiceover rather, is going to say, person holding a white cane. The descriptions uh, will be very interesting is what I'm trying to spit out. Thanks, Sean. Yeah, the new Focus 40 Blue is a great product. I've just actually picked one up for myself, as I mentioned in the last edition of The Blind Side, and uh, took it on a bit of a tour when we were away over the Easter period. It was extremely handy because... The Mosin Explosion, which I do on Mushroom FM on a Sunday afternoon live, was coming from the hotel that we were staying at. It was fun doing that remote broadcast. And I had the two USB ports in my laptop consumed, one by the microphone and another by a portable hard drive, which contained a whole bunch of music that I wanted to play. It was really nice having the ability to pair up to five Bluetooth devices with the Focus 40 Blue It meant I could quickly check text messages on my phone and then switch back to another Bluetooth connection where I had the PC connected via Bluetooth to the Focus and then read emails and messages that were coming through there and track what was playing and all those good things. So, yep, it's a great display. Very solid. It's really solid. It's got these bumpers as well that prevent things from being knocked when uh, when you've got the display in a backpack. So a very nice upgrade. Thanks for all the feedback. A reminder about how to get in touch. You can drop me an email with an audio clip or some text. Theblindside at mosin.org is how you do it. And you can also call the feedback line for the podcast on 719-270-5114. That's 719-270-5114. And now, stories making news in the blind community on The Blind Side. Every week ahead of the production of this podcast, I go through my Google News Alert that I've assembled to give me blindness-related stories, and I draw some of them that I think are of interest to your attention. I've had this one in my Insta paper for a few weeks now, sitting here ready for when we had the listener line up and running, because I think it may well provoke a little bit of discussion. So if you have some strong views on this, or even some moderate views, you can give me a call at 719-270-5114. That's 719-270-5114, theblindsideatmosin.org if you want to get in touch. And this issue is the old chestnut of person-first language. It is an issue that really presses the button for me. Person-first language irritates me to no end. Now, there is somebody who feels very differently about this, I happened to come across an article from a few weeks ago in the Kokomo Tribune in Indiana from Lisa Pace. I I do hope I'm pronouncing her name correctly. It is spelled L-I-S-E, so I'm going with Lisa. And uh, it's a very articulate piece. And she says in part, Unfortunately, we still live in a world where many people with disabilities are defined by a medical diagnosis, devaluing everything else about who they are as people and reducing them to just being different than me. We use terms like blind woman, autistic student, or handicapped neighbor, lazy labels that ignore the person behind the disability. She continues, the words we use to describe people with disabilities in conversation, in writing, in social media, and elsewhere are powerful and can shape how the world perceives these issues. Simplified labels cause society to have a narrow view, exacerbating stereotypes and fostering attitudes that make it hard for people with disabilities to integrate into mainstream society. 
People first language, she says, is the philosophy of putting the person before his or her disability and is one way we can begin to change the conversation around disability issues. In people first language, the disability simply becomes a secondary trait, not a defining characteristic. To revisit the examples given above, we would instead say a woman who is blind, a student with autism, or my neighbour who uses a wheelchair. People-first language emphasises we are all people first and foremost. Labelling us all as blind people is inaccurate and misses the point. If we only see the disability, we miss out on the other shared experiences that could bring us together. You may not realise your colleague who is blind also shares your affinity for 80s pop music, that your nephew who has autism is a wealth of sports trivia, or that your neighbour who uses a wheelchair has a passion for woodworking. What's even more concerning, she continues, is that these misperceptions could lead to fewer job opportunities for people with disabilities. A common myth is that it is difficult to supervise employees with disabilities or that it is expensive to make the workplace accessible. I have a very different view on this, as do many New Zealanders. A few years ago, the government of the day embarked on a disability strategy. And when the government of the day issued their first consultation documents that began this process, they talked of people experiencing disability. And there was an enormous backlash from disabled people themselves about this issue. And they wrote back in large number and they said, can we please lose the convoluted, politically correct language? We're happy to be blind people or disabled people or whatever that, in fact, if you use convoluted language that you wouldn't use for any other characteristic, you actually draw more attention to that characteristic and therefore you do more harm than good. Do we talk, for example, about a woman experiencing beauty or a man experiencing handsomeness? Do we talk about a person with intelligence or do we just say that somebody seems to be quite an intelligent person? There are many other characteristics that can be the cause of discrimination, and yet they don't go for person-first language. For example, you don't hear about a person with gayness or a person with uh, a person who is lesbian. You don't hear about a person experiencing African-Americanness, for instance. And when we start pulling people up for not using person-first language, or when we insist on using people who are blind, it actually stifles the dialogue because people are so scared of saying the wrong thing. I am constantly dismayed by how many people go through all sorts of linguistic hoops to avoid the word blind, for example. I get visually impaired, and I'm not visually impaired. My vision doesn't work at all. It's not impaired. It's completely disabled. And I say to them, blind is fine. Of course, there's also visually challenged. There is a whole bunch of terminology that can be put up to substitute for the word blind or the phrase a blind person. So I would actually argue the opposite from Lisa Pace, who was suggesting that the lack of person-first language may be inhibiting job opportunities. I think person-first language is inhibiting job opportunities because you don't know what is in the employer's mind when they decide that this person is not going to be suitable for a particular position. We have to put employers at their ease, in my view, and give them the freedom to as easily as possible ask the question, okay, I know you're a blind person. How are you going to do this job? Can you just talk me through the processes, the technology you have at your disposal that will allow you to do this particular job that you're applying for? But people are so scared of saying the wrong thing because the word has sort of gotten out that somehow you have to talk about disabled people in a special way, that you talk about no other characteristic, that it actually gets people scared about even having the discussion. And so I think person-first language is doing a lot of harm in terms of job prospects. And one wonders, who is it that has decided that this person-first language is somehow the way to go, is some edict, because there's not a lot of evidence of it that I can see. There is a resolution on the books from the National Federation of the Blind, which actually deplores the use of person-first language. The New Zealand Blindness Organisation has a similar resolution on its books, saying blind person is just fine. There's no need to put 
the person first because we don't put the person first when we talk about any other characteristic. I will link to this article in the show notes and I will also link to a blog post that I wrote some time ago on this very subject called Person First Language. It does more harm than good. And what's interesting to me is that sometimes I write an article for some publication or other, or, or I submit a document, and I, as a blind person, get pulled up by a sighted person for using the term blind person. And my point is, who are they to tell me how to define myself? I'm a blind person, just like I'm actually a fairly short person. I don't consider myself a person with shortness, and I don't consider myself vertically challenged. I am a blind guy. I'm comfortable in my own skin, and I am comfortable with other people just using the same sort of linguistic order as they would to describe any other characteristic or personality trait. It's also interesting that in the United Kingdom, I detect, you know, when I listen to programs like In Touch, which is an excellent program on the BBC, it's not that often that they will use the word blind. It seems that totally blind people over in the UK seem to have gotten into this groove of referring to themselves as visually impaired. And I'd be interested to explore that as well. So if you have some views on the person first language thing, 719-270-5114 or theblindside at mosin.org. And in other news, as they say, in other news, the state of Missouri has agreed to pay $21 million to blind residents who are underpaid from a state safety net fund. Missouri Attorney General Josh Hawley announced the settlement on March the 1st, and all parties have agreed to ask a judge to approve the settlement in a March 30th hearing. So hopefully that has all happened by now. The agreement would end a 10-year-long court battle between the state and the Missouri Council of the Blind and other plaintiffs over payment from the Blind Pension Fund. I understand Missouri is quite a generous place in in terms of uh, being blind, similar to the provisions that Australia and New Zealand have. The fund was created in 1921 to provide monthly benefits to blind Missourians and is funded by the state. The lawsuit began in 2006 over allegations that Missouri Department of Social Services and the Family Support Division incorrectly calculated how much money recipients were supposed to get each month. This settlement includes $11.4 million towards the underpayments, plus $9.5 million in interest. Both sides agreed they are pleased the long court battle is done. And finally, in this week's podcast, I wasn't sure whether to include this. I kind of vacillated about whether to include it or not. But if you listen to my radio work, you will know that I'm a major Beatles collector and I like a lot of music from the 1960s and 70s. And I must admit, from time to time, I have been curious about this question. And you are talking to someone who hasn't even inhaled. Uh, I, I haven't inhaled. It's been a while since I tried to impersonate Bill Clinton, but I haven't. But I've been curious about this one. And the question is, how do blind people experience psychedelic drugs? So this definitely writes in the please do not try this at home department, right? You can read this article and find out vicariously, right? Don't try it at home. But this is the subject of a paper that has been published in the academic journal, the medical journal called Consciousness and Cognition. The paper's authors are people from the University of Bath in the United Kingdom. But the real star contributor is a man referred to only as Mr. Blue Pentagon. Ooh, trippy. (laughs) Blue Pentagon, or BP, as he is known throughout the paper, is a pseudonym for a 70-year-old blind man who reports taking large quantities of LSD and other drugs during his career as a rock musician in the 1970s. Maybe Blue Pentagon is listening to this podcast as we speak. A blue pentagon, by the way, was his favorite brand of LSD. Here's what he says about his perception of music. During my psychedelic experiences, whenever I listened to music, I felt as if I was immersed in the most beautiful waterfall ever. The episode of the waterfall was the nearest I ever came to experiencing anything like synesthesia. The music of Bach's third Brandenburg concerto brought on the waterfall effect. I could hear violins playing in my soul and found myself having a one-hour-long monologue using different tones of voices. I remember they sounded extremely unique. LSD gave everything height. 
the waterfall experience was limited to one specific piece of music, Bach's Brandenburg Concerto No. 3. It was almost tactile, but it was so outside my normal parameters of experience that it was the only way I could express it. And it goes on. Yeah, well, I'm glad someone else did it so I don't have to. Thanks for listening to The Blind Side, a production of Mosin Consulting. On the web at mosin.org.